You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. I started this podcast journey to share inspiring stories of the student's journey with you to help keep you inspired to get on your mat and keep practicing. Today, Jonathan Ferrucci joins me to share his inspiring journey into the practice of yoga. Jonathan is a classical pianist based in London. He's studied piano in Florence, Italy, then in London at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And the connection between yoga and music and the elusive state of flow that musicians aim for on stage is something we discussed, as well as what was the crisis moment that brought him into bringing his attention to the practice of yoga. Ashtanga yoga for him has served as a mirror to self that helps him check in with his authenticity and integrity as an artist and as a human being. So I hope you enjoy this episode as we dive into the Ashtanga yoga method. And Jonathan even asked me a question about my teaching in Ashtanga. So definitely tune in for that. If you're inspired by this podcast, please tune into the live concert that Jonathan is doing on OMSTARS where we are collecting donations for a charity that brings music to children in disadvantaged situations. Some of the really wonderful and inspiring work that Jonathan is committed to off of the mat, away from the piano, and in the world. And I hope you enjoy this episode and feel a little bit of inspiration. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for being on the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on as a guest. For those of you who are listening that don't know Jonathan, Jonathan, would you just share a little bit about yourself and how you came to the practice of yoga? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Um, and of course, my name is Jonathan. I'm half Australian, half Italian, and I'm currently living in London. And I'm a pianist, actually. So my full-time job is playing piano. Um, but I also have been practicing yoga for quite a few years. And it's interesting how these two worlds connect to me. I feel like in many ways, for me, they are both part of the same uh, personal inquiry and search for, I guess, meaning in life. And how I came to the practice of yoga is actually through my mum. My my mother practiced yoga for many many years, and she had a really amazing. Uh, she had few amazing teachers first in Sydney where she was brought up, and then in Italy where my parents live at the moment. And at the time, I was living in Florence in Italy, and uh, she just put me in contact with her teacher, her uh, Iyengar teacher, who was my first yoga teacher. And this is uh, Gabriela Jubilaro, who is a really amazing Iyengar teacher. And to this day, I still hear her voice in my head when I'm practicing sometimes. Um, so that was my first introduction to yoga, and it was I mean, I was just going like once a week for a few months, but I remember everything from those classes and it made such a strong impression on me. Um, 
And then I moved to London to pursue my studies in music and piano. And so I kind of lost contact with yoga for a while. I was doing, you know, I was taking a few classes at the gym here and there, but a bit scattered and all over the place. And, and it was only till a few years later that I uh, then found Ashtanga Yoga um, when I moved back to Italy for a year uh, in Milano with a really fabulous teacher, uh, Rosa Tagliafetto. Um, and I found Ashtanga Yoga and then it became my daily practice. And it really had a, a very strong impact on my life um, and also on my life as a musician and as a performer. And so when I moved back to London, as you can see, I've been kind of moving back and forth quite a bit. But when I moved back to London, I found my teachers here, um, Tom and Lauren from Ashtanga Yoga London, who are amazing. And I've been practicing ever since and keep practicing, you know, in this current pandemic situation, which is really a lifesaver, actually. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of in summary. So what an interesting and inspiring story that you have. And I think many people can relate to, say, being introduced to yoga, you from your mom and maybe from someone else through some friends, going through a period where, you know, you start and you're inspired and then losing it for a little bit. I'd love to go back to kind of like your first class. You know, what was that? How old were you? What was that like? Were you intimidated at all? You know, Iyengar tradition is like Ashtanga, very traditional. You know, how did you feel walking into that space? And were you good at yoga right from the beginning? <laughs> That's, yeah, I think it, a mixture of everything, you know. I mean, I was 20 when I, when I took my first class and it was, as I said, Iyengar. But I had this idea of yoga as being some, you know, like new age, wishy-washy thing. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know about lineage. I didn't know about tradition. I didn't know how many centuries this culture and philosophy had had survived. And um, so I just thought it was this, you know, new age uh, thing. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be easy. I was always, you know, good at like handstands and stuff like that. But I was stiff as a board. I mean, I remember a friend of mine being like, you know, you should really do something about those hamstrings because <laughs> it's really not good. So um, so I found it incredibly hard. I, I wouldn't say I was intimidated, but I was, I was humbled and struck by how much I didn't know about myself, about my body, how absent I was from my body, um, how my mind was constantly wandering and in a state of maybe distress or anxiety or uh, disembodiment. And so I was, I was just amazed by the potential of what was in front of me, of this tool, these tools that the teacher was presenting. Um, and as I said, then I left it for a while and I lost it. And I always had this feeling that, uh, I'll, I'll get back to that. And I, it was only after a few years of, you know, a lot of stress and a lot of, I, I think I had to get to a critical point mm -hmm. to then realize that I really needed something to get back to that. Um, and what was that, what was that critical point for you about? 
Well, I think for me it was, you know, being a performer, being a musician, we we live in, in high-pressure environments and we work in, in, in constant preparation of performing. So there is, you know, a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of um, natural nervousness that is, it's indispensable, it's necessary, but if it accumulates and if we don't realize if we don't know how to take care of ourselves, then we just accumulate it. And, and, and that's what happened for me. I was studying, but at the same time, beginning performing career in, uh, here in London. And I started to enter these high pressure environments from, from my standard at least. And it got to a point where I, I just was very anxious and I was, I wasn't sleeping well, and that I think that was there was a period where I had a lot of things coming up, a lot of performances, exams, and I got to a point where all of a sudden I couldn't sleep, mm-hmm. and I had never had any problems with sleep. I'd always loved sleeping, and all of a sudden, here I go, three full days without sleeping. Wow! Um, and then, I mean, I. What I had to do at that time was, um, you know, treat the symptom at the moment because it was such a critical mm-hmm. situation for me. And I, I remember I had to, I had a, a big performance and then a competition coming up a few weeks after. And the night before, I remember lying in bed at 3 a.m. knowing that the next day I had to play, you know, like 80 minutes of music by memory and I couldn't sleep. And so I, I have to, you know, I ended up having to, you know, take some, some, uh, drugs to treat the symptom there and then, but I knew that I wasn't addressing the issues and the real problems. And so looking back, that's, I think that's how I soon after found yoga and specifically Ashtanga yoga. So there are so many people who come to yoga for one of those crisis moments and, you know, there's no shame in, you know, treating the symptom when it's there and it's in an acute stage. You know, if we need to take a pain reliever, a sleeping pill or something like that to just get us through a period of time, there's, there's no shame in that. You know, I feel like I know some people that feel when they, you know, if they take an Advil or something, they almost have a guilty conscience about it or, you know, ibuprofen and they're like, oh, I have to take this ibuprofen. It's like, okay, it's not, it's not a banned substance, you know, but I think, you know, uh, I really want to commend you for digging deeper and really recognizing, oh, this is just a symptom. There's something deeper that's going on here. So what, like what happened? Did you fall asleep after your first Ashtanga class? Did you just get so exhausted from all those jump backs and jump throughs that like you could sleep at night? Like what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny. I think it's an ongoing battle, you know, uh, staying healthy. It's not something that you just, you know, you do your Ashtanga class once and then problem solved. Um, it's something that, you know, I still have some nights where I'm like, okay, here we are. I hope I, I fall asleep. But the thing is, I remember walking into a Mysore room for the first time and just feeling this complete silence, just the sound of breathing and people moving in all directions. 
and a teacher just silently walking from one person to the next, showing them some attention and helping them. And I think it was that silence that struck me the most, this space where each person was immersed in their own practice, in their own inquiry, and at the same time connected by that motivation to to see what was there, to see what's going on, and to to find some stillness through all this insane movement that, that Ashtanga mm-hmm. presents you with. Mm-hmm. So did you go almost directly into the traditional Mysore style practice, or did you have any, any kind of buffer? <laughs> well, I, I remember looking up um, on YouTube some Ashtanga videos, and I came across uh, David Swenson's um, primary series where you know he goes into handstands between between Navasanas and I was like, oh that's so cool. I can do a handstand. So I'll do it. I can't do some of the stuff before. So I'll just skip that. And I'll just and then I went into the Mysore room and they were like, you know what this is, right? You know this is I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And I was just going through, I didn't remember some of the poses and I could see the teacher kind of looking at me like mm, maybe I should stop him, but she didn't. And then I got to Navasa and I started doing these handstands and my teacher came to me and she said, no, no, no. <laughs> um, can you buy an in Marichasana D? And I was like, can I do what and what now? <laughs> um, so that was, and that was really a big lesson for me was to, to stop. And, and I think I have a, a, a you know, there's this performing ambitious side of my personality that has been really, um, it, it has been met with patience in the Ashtanga system. And so I said, okay, well, no, I can't do this. I'll take my time. I'll sit here. And so that was a really big lesson to me. Yeah. What a beautiful lesson. And you took it in a really nice way, you know, and, you know, to be able to let go of the, you know, the attachment to what we do well, and then be able to focus on what we do not do well. And that's so much the heart of what, you know, Ashtanga is about and why so many people, I think, find it really, really difficult is, you know, in the traditional practice, you walk into the Mysore style room and if there's a posture you can't do, you know, if you, you're asked to sit and work on it and, and sort of sit with your struggle and failure until you kind of sort it out. Whereas if you go into some, a different style of yoga, then you're kind of given, you will here, just modify the posture, do this or do that instead. And so Ashtanga can be very, you know, confronting, but it sounds like in that confrontation that you found a really, really good lesson, maybe a, a lesson of patience, a lesson of peace, would you be able to walk me through how that translated into sleeping better at night, how that translated into just kind of being more relaxed and maybe also how that translated into, into your performances and into your music? Yeah, absolutely. I think the important thing for me about Ashtanga, I've asked myself a lot, actually, what is, what is Ashtanga? What is, is it the sequence? Is it, is it the breath? Is it the Tristana? You know, the, these three points of focus that we hold. It, and for me, it's actually just showing up every day and 
doing something every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and holding, and personally for me, it is actually this, the, the Tristana, the holding the breath, the drishti, um, and the, the shape of the pose. I feel like those three things help a lot. But for me, what was so important was that it was a daily effort. And on the days where I, on the, my rest days, on the days where I couldn't practice, I still had that presence of mind to go about my day with a bit more mindfulness and a bit more attention to the breath, perhaps, or to my interaction with other people. And it, my, I feel like this, the physical practice translated into a spiritual practice very quickly for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm so grateful for that. I, I would say that in general, it's, Ashtanga has helped me calm down simply because it gives me the ability to sit with the discomfort rather than run away from it, rather than try to rush past it. And and in performing, it helps enormously because I have a feeling that we have this idea of artists and of performers as, you know, these unstable, crazy people who live outside of society and, you know, have to live between extreme states of ecstasy and of depression. And and I really would like to challenge that notion. Um, I think that that stability and and clarity in the mind can only help us connect more to the messages that we are trying to convey when we perform. And so yoga is about being present. And when I what that translates to when I'm when I'm on stage is that I'm able to be more present in each note that I'm playing and between each note and in each silence, you know, um, it, that there really is so much yoga in music where if you look deeply, I think. Mm-hmm. I love your investigation and the level of your, your, your quest within asking that the, within asking what is Ashtanga, you know, is it the series of poses? Is it Tristana or what is it? And I, I think that there are some, some that you actually really hit the heart of what the method is about when you said that it translated into a spiritual practice very, very quickly, that I think that those students that tap into that kind of stream of spirituality and the way that those, those lessons that we learn on the mat, they translate into a better life. And it's not always, you know, a one-to-one, you know, because I was able to bind in Mari Chas and Adi, then now I'm this nicer person. It's not that, it's not this linear progression. It's this, it's this kind of, this kind of, you know, this drinking of an elixir that somehow comes into the body and mind and changes everything. And I, I just, I love that you found that because in the Ashtanga method, you know, we both practice that and we know, and for anybody listening that isn't familiar with the Ashtanga method, it, it is very, it's, it's probably one of the most strict methods of yoga that exists, the one of the most traditional, the most lineage based, not, not that there's a competition about that. It's just something that really distinguishes it. You know, there's a high demand. 
if you want to practice a traditional method very quickly, it's six days a week, show up to practice. You want practice, you're encouraged to practice very early in the morning. And then there are all these sacrifices that come about. I remember when I was first uh, starting to do the practice, my life changed, not because I wanted to change my life, even though I did on some subtle level, wanted to change my life. I didn't want to make those changes that Ashtanga asked of me. So, you know, Ashtanga asked me to go to bed early and wake up early. And very quickly, Ashtanga asked me to change my diet. And very quickly, Ashtanga asked me to, as as you mentioned, to be conscious of what I'm saying moment by moment to feel my body and feel my breath. And I just wanted to live a more peaceful life. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. I'm changing my life. But of course, that was necessary. So what big life changes have have you, has Ashtanga asked of you? in terms of, you know, schedule, in terms of friendships, in terms of diet or behavior or anything else that you may have noticed that's shifted since you started the practice? That's interesting. I think, uh, well, in terms of just to start from basic things, uh, in terms of diet, I think I was already, uh, I became vegetarian when I was about 18. And then um, I'm currently kind of slowly going towards being vegan. Uh, personally, I feel that that works for me. Um, although it, I'm not completely, completely vegan, but, um, definitely uh, it's made me think more about where the food I eat, where my food is, is from. Uh, I think that's a big problem though. I and mean, that's a really complex issue. And I feel that it's also very personal. Uh, a very personal choice and I just know that that's, that's right for me eventually with time. Mm-hmm. I, I think I was always, it's interesting, the, the changes in my life were quite subtle. I um, actually only recently started practicing in the morning. I used to practice in the evening because, you know, just because of how life was. And, and before this whole pandemic, I was traveling a lot, um, for performing and that's one of the things that I loved about Ashtanga was that I would go to a different city and I would just have my mat with me and I could practice anywhere you know as long as I could fit the mat in my (laughs) hotel room or I even practiced on stage before a concert a few times where they let me where they didn't think I was insane I would just roll out my mat and sometimes I would even, you know, go to the local shala and they I mm-hmm. walk in and they would know, you know, what I was going going there for. So I love that. It's like a language it, around the world. Exactly. And it, it and it what I loved about it was that traveling can be so disorienting and so uh, it, it just messes with your whole metabolism, with your with your mind, with your sense of space and time. And what, what the practice did for me was really ground me. And, you know, when you, you're somewhere you've, you've never been before and you finally find a map and it has that little red arrow that says you are here, you know, and that's really what I felt the practice did for me. It, it grounded me. It brought me back to the present time and space. In terms of big changes, I've always had amazing friends that supported me whatever I did. Um, and who I support. Uh, and I've always um, been prepared to make space for space and time for the practices that I need. And I have the privilege to be able to do that because it's, it's not easy. You know, some people 
I have a freelance career, so I can really move my my work around and try to fit things in. But I know that that's a really big um, privilege that I have. Uh, so yeah, I'm wondering also for you what what I'm curious about is from the perspective of, of someone who's taught for so many years, how your your vision of teaching has changed. Because I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing at the moment with, you know, expanding the vocabulary of Ashtanga beyond the the the, the dogmatic conception mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think you know, it's so often we slip from tradition to fundamentalism. You know, mm-hmm. so often we slip from equanimity to indifference. There are so mm-hmm. many of these mm-hmm. these big words in our yoga vocabulary that have a mm-hmm. slippery slope. And so I'm wondering from your perspective in your teaching, how has your idea of of, of teaching evolved with what's happening in, in the yoga world nowadays and, and with what you've learned? No, this is a great question, and thanks for thanks for bringing that up. I think this is a, a really big a really big topic to kind of consider. I mean, I, so I've been teaching for uh, around twenty years, and I did my first class when I was nineteen, and then I I feel like I've gone through transitions in terms of my relationship with the practice, and also transitions in relationship to who I am as a teacher and what I what I think Ashtanga is, and what I think yoga is, and what I want to offer to the world. So I can look back and I can see. And I still can really tap into that initial inspiration, you know, what brought me to the practice, that initial inspiration of I want to live a better life. I still remember my first Ashtanga class, that indelible imprint of the power of, as you were speaking about before, of of embodiment and the quiet in the mind and the desire to go to India and to practice in India and then the desire to teach. And I I still, I I can tap into being a new teacher and having this kind of schism of feeling unworthy to carry the method on while at the same time being really, really excited uh, about holding space for what the, you know, what the method of yoga uh, was and and is and, you know, can be for people. So I remember that. And I think that I went through a period where I was really kind of strict and, and, and really adhering to the formal rules of Ashtanga, you know, like if you can't bind your hands and you can't move on and I'm going to help you do that. And we're going to go through this process and this sort of thing. And then, I don't know, I just really sat with it for a while. Um, and I want to say that actually teaching yoga to my mom really opened my eyes and expanded my possibilities of how to make the practice accessible. So my mom is, uh, she has two total knee replacements And so there's no amount of opening, stretching, you know, this or that, that's ever going to make her knees bend more than 90 degrees. If her knees bend more than 90 degrees, she might need another operation. So I'm just like, wow, there's just all these yoga poses in primary series, including the jump back and the jump through that she just like can't do. So what now she can't do yoga because of that, because she's just going to be stuck. What doing the the standing poses up to, you know, Parjvottanasana and then that's it. And then no more for her because she can't uh, take half Lotus and bend forward. Oh, that's just impossible. So then I really started to think, you know, just teaching my mom, even on Ohm Stars, I have a class with my mom where she's a student. And so I bring in a chair and have her sit in a chair. And I started to go on this journey of what is the essence of this yoga asana? And how can I communicate the essence of what this yoga asana is 
to this student. So it became more personal and intimate that I was less interested in this asana and everybody has to learn it. It was the essence, the essential nature and dissecting and deconstructing that asana. What's the learning potential? What does that asana as a catalyst have to offer this being who is on a growth, learning, spiritual, incarnative experience here on earth, and then combining those two for a unique expression. And then, and then also being conscious of myself, like not letting people off the hook. Hey, there's learning for you here. I want you to show up and do that learning. And it doesn't have to look like everyone else is learning. So no, you don't have to get into half Lotus. No, you don't have to bind your hands, but you can't run away. And you can't run away from difficulty. And I will be here present with you to do that learning. So that's kind of where that seed came from, from from my end. And I really kind of looked really deeply inside and found out that, oh, asana for me is this catalyst of spiritual learning. And I think you discovered already what, what the main catalyst of asana is, which is the tool of embodiment to bring you into this journey of feeling. So you do this asana so that we can feel what I consider to be the field of the body. And we bring our consciousness into the body so we experience whole consciousness. I used to think, you know, a good asana is one that like looks good when I was first starting the practice. And I would feel bad as a student if I didn't, you know, bind my wrist in, you know, one of the Marichasana poses. And now I'm like, I do this asana. If I felt something in my body, that asana was a success. And I, I really genuinely believe that. And, and, then, and then I've just gone on this really in-depth journey about Again, the essential nature of that asana. This student, they need a chair. Okay, how can I how can I help them in that asana with a chair? The student, they, they don't need a chair. They can get up and down from the floor. Great. Let's work with them on that level. And and in this way, I feel that no matter if I'm going to be teaching full primary series or some modified beginner, almost almost like a hatha yoga practice, or if I'm even teaching, you know, a more a more meditation based, just guided progressive relaxation. For me, it's all still Ashtanga yoga. And I was just having a conversation with someone about this today that they were like, oh, Ashtanga yoga is the series. And I'm like, no, no, it's not the series. The series is part of the tool of the Ashtanga path, but it's something dramatically deeper and harder to explain. So, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for bringing that up as a discussion, a, a topic of discussion, because, you know, we can, someone can look in from the outside and think, oh, Ashtanga, there's so many things to poke at and critique. You know, it's this, it's so hierarchical. You have to do one and then the other, and then this and then that. Uh, you know, and, and at the same time, it's something totally different, you know, at the same time, it's something that's, that's absolutely hard to define this, this kind of journey of embodiment. Jonathan, I'd love to talk to you about that embodiment that you experienced. Like, I remember what it was like after my first class and I describe it as for the first time in my life, feeling comfortable in my own skin. So what was like, what was that, that, you know, when you talked about your first class, even this was a Yangar class, but you felt, you said there was some lesson about embodiment and, and like, did you recognize that you were kind of out of your body and that through the tool of asana, you came back to the body or what, like in what ways were you disembodied? Mm-hmm. And then in what ways were you kind of re remembering the body? Yeah, I think, I, I think I was definitely outside of my body. And I think that's something that happens to most of us as we grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, when I look back, I feel like my deepest experiences of yoga were, were actually as a child growing up. I was, I was lucky enough to grow up in the countryside, in nature, and I used to spend like extensive amounts of time on my own, you know, in the fields and in the trees, um, just, you know, just being, just hanging out. And when I look back, that's really the most profound 
version of yoga that I've experienced mm. in my life. And, and anything that I've experienced through my yoga practice as an adult um, is kind of attempting to get closer to that state of pure presence and um, oneness with nature in, in a way. So when I did my first Ayanka class, what I noticed was that by bringing attention to the skin of the left heel, I could feel, and you know, Ayanka people will, will know that the skin of the left heel is very important. Um, <laughs> I, I just, um, I realized that, that there was so much potential to bring consciousness to, to my body and beyond. And I started to ask myself, well, where does my body end and the rest of the external world begin? You know, I just started to send my awareness to the different parts of the body. And by doing so, I was awakening my, my, myself. <laughs> and the body really is such a powerful tool because we, we use it every day for everything, mm -hmm. you know? So, and, and that was, I, I must say that Ashtanga had, a, had uh, because I was practicing, I'm practicing it daily, has a much stronger effect. Um, I think that's a really big component. If you, if you practice daily, it really has such a strong impact because it becomes like, you know, brushing your teeth. You, you, you don't forget to do it, you know? Um, <laughs> And so when I started practicing Ashtanga, so many things came up. Uh, for me, backbending, for example, was a really, is a really intense process. Um, I th it even brought up certain memories that I, I, I kind of, you know, didn't uh, remember were there. And it was, it was, the practice was really, cutting me open at times it was it was quite intense um but i'm so grateful to have had the tools through this practice to sit with the emotions that came up and to accept them and to feel them because what happens when we don't have these tools is that we just accumulate stress and feelings that we give a name to but that we don't actually experience i hope that makes sense <laughs> that definitely makes sense and um i'm just pausing for a moment because i think you can hear there's an electrical sound oh i didn't hear it but okay i just want to make sure that we have good audio so um, yeah. i'm just pausing for a moment i'll make sure that they know that we um we're getting some small okay good there it goes yeah so what i mean that makes a lot of sense jonathan and i think that i love your your memories that came up from when you were a child out in nature i think that i've heard many people talk about that they're deepest experiences of yoga are actually out of off of the practice are out in nature or that they have had those kind of life-changing spiritual experiences 
um, you know, they get off the mat and then later in the day when, you know, you're watching the sunrise or the sunset or looking at a flower or something beautiful kind of makes contact with you that in, that in that moment, that that's when you feel the impact of the yoga practice. So I, I would love to dive in a little bit to how you said that there's a lot of yoga in music. So for, you know, many people who are listening, I hope they all uh, really uh, get inspired to listen to your music and join your upcoming concert that we're hosting on OMSTARS. And I uh, would love to hear more about this intersection between, you know, yoga and music so that you, uh, so that people can really see how that, how that works. Absolutely. I, first of all, I'm so excited about this concert and I'm so grateful to collaborate with uh, with you and OnStars, it's really exciting, especially at this time when, especially here in London, where, you know, it's still quite locked down. So to be able to share some music is just such a joy. Um, and I'm also really excited because this, uh, any donations that will be made during this concert will go to a really amazing cause, uh, Il Sistema, which is uh, an umbrella of organizations that helps bring music to children from really disadvantaged backgrounds. And I had the honor of working with them in Oregon a couple of years ago. I was there playing a few concerts and they took me to a couple of schools where I was going to meet these kids and and play some music for them. And I remember at the end of one of these sessions, I was about to leave. And a kid just stopped me at the door and said, can you just, can you just wait for a second? Can I just play you something? And he sat down at the piano and he played something that he had composed. And I was just so moved because he was, I could tell how much he needed someone to listen to him. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought, you know, I'm where I am only because I had the opportunity to pursue my dreams, to pursue my studies. I had supportive parents. I had supportive friends. I had amazing teachers. And, and you know, I could see how much it meant for this kid that I was there listening for three minutes to him play. So I really, sorry to digress, but I really hope that people will come and join uh, this concept, and um, I really believe that yoga is about change in the world. is about bringing change. You know, if you're not a monk, or if you're not, uh, you know, um, living somewhere, uh, if you're not a renunciate, you and you practice yoga, then you live in the world, and you, you know, that's something we have to. Um, deal with and we I believe that making change is a very important part of yoga but to get get back to your question about how yoga and music relate I think they're both languages you know they're first of all that both of them are non-verbal forms of communication because whether we're communicating with ourselves or with others during a yoga practice where listening to ourselves, listening to our bodies, listening to our minds, and communicating with those different parts of ourselves. And in a way, if we're practicing with others, 
I think, I believe there is some kind of nonverbal communication going on there as well. And the, the poses, if we look at it from a physical point of view, the poses are a language. And music is also a language. It, when we play, we, we listen not only to the sound, but we listen to the essence of what, in my case, the composer is trying to express. So I play classical music, which means I, I don't play my own music. I interpret um, other pieces. And what I love about classical music is that the music I play has survived centuries, yeah. just like the yoga poses, just like the yoga philosophy that we study. So um, it's really all an opportunity to both yoga and music to inquire into what it really means to be a human being. These, these pieces of music contain the essence of human emotion and, and my job as a performer is to hopefully become a vessel for that and simply let the music speak through me. So I really believe that there is so much. I really feel that for me, it's, it's a, obviously a personal thing because there are these two parts of me, um, practicing yoga, practicing music, um, and also teaching in both cases. Um, so it is a, a personal search for unity in these two different discipline. But I also believe that yoga is really about connecting these unseemingly, uh, seemingly unrelated dots, you know, and, and so I really believe that there is so much intersection between yoga and music. I love this idea of nonverbal communication and at the same time, the, the relationship that I can see between, as you said, as you described classical music, that you don't, that you don't compose your own music, but you interpret this music that survived generations. And I feel like, you know, if we look at the Ashtanga practice and what we could call classical yoga, then it's like, we're here, we're not inventing a new practice, but we're making it our own in our con this contemporary age. And I think that's a great uh, way to kind of straddle that, uh, the difference between lineage and individuality and, you know, between honoring the tradition and bringing our sense of our own agency without necessarily needing to say, invent a whole new style. You know, when you're when you're when you're moving into these these really well established classical pieces of music, it's not necessarily it's not you know it's not necessary to re like invent them. Of course, some people are you know composers and make new music and that sort of thing, and we have that in the yoga world as well. But I think for people questioning or thinking about is it boring to do the same series over and <laughs> over again, then you know we can think we can think about oh well you know is it boring to listen to you know Beethoven and Mozart over and over again we've been playing them for hundreds of years like no it's not boring you know actually I, I really I'm personally really looking forward to your concert and I hope that everyone listens 
listening will will really really tune in and and donate to this really really wonderful cause. Um, Jonathan, I've got kind of maybe one last question for you, which is uh, what pieces of inspiration do you have to any of the students listening, those who might be new to the practice of yoga or who are been pra- who've been practicing for a while and are are just interested to get that dose of inspiration back. Mm. That's uh, that's a difficult, really difficult question. I would say, first of all, I think that inspiration is available twenty four seven nowadays. I, I think that's what I, I I feel constantly inspired these days. Not because you know I um, I'm you know eat, eating something strange or funny, um, but because there's just you can go on YouTube and just look up the most amazing experts of every single discipline, every single thing you can possibly imagine. So first of all, I I believe that inspiration is really available to us everywhere. What I would say is it's your practice. It's no one else's practice. It's your practice and whatever you find along the way there is something to grow from that i really love that it's your practice and in order for someone to keep practicing for their whole life i really believe that's absolutely true it has to become your practice and even though we all rely on teachers and mentors and people who are further along the path it's every one of ours our responsibility as students to just keep walking along the path so i love that and i'm going to leave everyone with that wonderful dose of inspiration to just make the practice your own. And thank you so much, Jonathan. I really, really enjoyed hearing your story and sharing your inspirational path to the yoga practice. And again, I'm just really looking forward to uh, listening to your music. For everyone who might want to follow you on social media, where can people follow you and find out more information about you? Well, okay. I, I have to admit, I'm just starting to get my social media act together. I've been a bit lazy from that point of view. But you can find me, uh, I have Instagram, uh, my at Jonathan Pesucci, my name. Um, you can find me at my website, www.jonathanpesucci.com. And if you just type my name into YouTube or Spotify, there is some of my music out there. And I hope it brings some joy and some peace. Wonderful. And I just encourage everyone to go and do that. And thank you so much again. And uh, we will see you not on the mat, but at the piano very soon. <laughs> Thank you, Kino. Thank you so much for having me. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.